right, Jeff Cunningham, welcome to the show. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to, for you to be here as well. We, we do uh, throw text messages and stuff like that uh, occasionally back and forth, but we actually had a chance to meet in person uh, a few years ago now, and um, I'm never going to forget that trip. There was so many positive things, doing live shows with Jared Ward, Alexi Pappas, Molly Huddle. You and I sat down and talked for a few hours after one of those live shows, and in retrospect, I was one of the first people ever to get COVID after coming out of that trip. I got COVID before they even had the COVID test. I came back from COVID, came back from, from Houston with COVID. It was a, a dramatic weekend for me uh, in, in, uh, at the Houston Marathon. Well, I uh, swear to tell the truth, the whole truth. So help me God, you didn't catch it from me. I promise I did not give you COVID, Matt. <laughs> that was the third week of January 2020. So I came back. I've told this story in the podcast before. I don't know if you ever heard this. So I came back about three days later. I am just, I'm sick as a dog. So I go to the walk-in and the guy who, you know, he comes in. He's like, all right. He's like, I know you have the flu. You obviously have the flu, but I have to give you the flu test because that's just a protocol within our office. I'm like, all right, whatever. Gives me the flu test. Comes back a few minutes later. He's like, well, this is a first you came back negative for the flu test, but like I've been doing this for 35 years and I know you have the flu. So whatever. I didn't think anything of it at the time. Go home, tell my wife. She basically viewed that as a way of being like, ah, see, this proves you're faking it. It's like, I'm not faking it. Like, can you hear my cough? I'm not faking it. Um, and now, you know, six months later, I'm like, Oh, the doc was right. I didn't have the flu. I had something else. Yeah. That's wild because that was January, 2020. So, um, I guess the Olympic trials were, February the 29th, right? The next month. Yeah. And then literally 14 days later, little did we know it was going to change the way we lived our lives, well, for the next couple of years for sure, and to some degree, in some ways, forever um, in, in certain in certain ways, right? So anyway, no no shade to H-Town, but I had to put out there. I don't think I ever told you that story, like that, that, that it actually had happened again. I don't have proof that I had covid in third week of January, but I can, t I do have proof I didn't have the flu. So, you know, process of deduction, I guess at that point. So Jeff, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast because you live such an interesting life within the running world. You're one of, and people may not know this, but you are one of the elite road running coaches in America. You coach some of the best runners around. You do a great job. You have an ever expanding list of runners, but at the same time, you also have an atypical background for someone who holds that position. So I think before we get into talking about running, talking about some of the elites that you, you work with, and then also uh, spend more time on some of the amateur runners that you work with, high-end amateur runners, and, and some of the things that you work with them on that can be applied to you know, the average folks like me and all the people who are listening, who are just trying to do their best every day. I do want to go through your background because it is a fascinating one. So before we talk about your job as a runner, let's talk about the job that actually pays the bills. What, what, is Jeff, what does Jeff Cunningham do during the majority of the day? Well, there's a lot of people that don't realize it, but I'm actually an attorney and I'm actually a practicing attorney and I have to try to juggle the practice of law and try to juggle uh, coaching. I do it better some days than others, but I'm always trying to do my best. Okay, so as a practicing lawyer, obviously you're not in the position of like, hey, I got to become a coach because I need some supplemental income. My job does not pay me a living wage, right? So you're obviously your, your job or your work as a coach is a passion project, right? This is not something that is a necessary side project because of a lack of funding or things like that, right? Where some people get into a second job or a second hobby or things like that, just like with my podcast. I didn't need, there was no income coming from my early podcast days. I did because I loved it. So talk to me about what pushed you or drew you to the sport of running uh, from a coaching perspective. And even if it dovetails with some of your athletic pursuits. Yeah, I, um, I was uh, uh, sort of cutting my teeth on uh, competitive running for the first time um, in the mid-1980s. And to this day, I still have lasting relationships. Uh, one of the um, very best all-time coaches still employed in the NCAA was one age group behind me. And um, she still holds a national record, uh, best as I can recall. And so, you know, it was really interesting going through 
uh, middle school track, then high school track, and then um, going and running at Baylor University, and then getting out and having sort of the ebb and flow of my career, and watching my peers get into coaching, some of my best friends get into coaching. I was coached by my father in high school, and then had um, an incredible coach at Baylor, Steve Gully, who's now the coach at the University of Tulsa and has one of the top uh, middle distance and distance programs in the NCAA right now. So I learned from the best and I got passionate about wanting to see um, young guys actually from my local area where I grew up progressing through the ranks in uh, scholastic athletics and then going on and running collegiately and so the first young man I ever coached was actually the son of a colleague of my mother's who was at a small town high school in northeast Texas and I coached him for two years um, back in 2000-2001 and he earned a uh, division one scholarship and it was just so fulfilling for me personally when I realized that I probably get more excited for the accomplishments of the people I coach than anything I ever personally accomplished as a runner. And I thought, I love this. I really love this. And that's how I got started was coaching one son of my mother's colleague in a little town and a little high school called Alba Golden High School in Northeast Texas. And that's how it started. Wow, look at that. That's that's that is really interesting. So when you were is going through the ranks as a runner against someone who's been coached by their dad, did you view like um some sort of I'm trying trying to think of the, the correct words here, but just like the idea of becoming a coach, was that kind of ingrained in you either somewhere in your psyche, like that there is some potential for this to be uh something that's a part of my life, um, you know, for as long as I'm, you know, as long as I'm able, or did you kind of just kind of happen upon this, right? And I say this because um, oftentimes when we think back to like, hey, you're in middle school or something like that, you'll get these reports or you know things like, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you know, you're at an age where it, you know, the idea of, of predicting such a thing is still ludicrous on its face. But but you're also at an age where you're aware of the things that you like and you're aware of maybe some of the ways that you stand out from your peers. And i look back in those days and I never identified what I do now, but like, I still like, I did want to be a coach. Right. And I did want to work. Like I want to work like as a media member, like, 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 you know, um, as an example, like being a columnist for like the local newspaper, like, or and talking about basketball and stuff like that. Cause that was a sport that I loved back then. It's like, wow, like that turned out to be pretty close to what I'm doing in terms of like being a media member and then also being a coach. Like when you look back on some of your earlier days, did you have an inkling that this was uh, a potential landing spot for you? Didn't realize it at the time, but the signs were there um, almost every step of the way. I remember I would get super excited when I was in high school when a potentially talented runner joined the team. And I would immediately offer up, hey, let's go do this workout. Hey, to kind of get you caught up, let's um, meet up during the summer and come with me. Let's do some tempo runs, some steady states. Um, let's run um, some hill reps. And I was always trying to get um, um, the guys to sort of come with me and get sort of not on board and even necessarily physically, but emotionally with the process of getting better as a team. And then when um, I got to Baylor, I was similarly excited at our successes. And then, you know, having the joy of being able to run at the NCAA championships, for instance, right, was just such a fulfilling thing that when I um, got to the end of my undergraduate days and I decided to apply to law school, um, my, interestingly enough, sort of second idea was, I want to be a high school history coach because I love world history and um, I want to coach track and what if I can have my cake and eat it too and as it would happen my wife and I both started coaching at a Catholic high school in Austin St. Michael's Catholic Academy 
and I was able to practice law and then started coaching officially at the high school in the fall of 2006 and my gosh what just an unbelievably rewarding experience getting to coach and to this day we have really really good relationships with uh, some of these young people who have now gone on and they're actually grown-ups and they crazy things like have kids who are starting elementary school and that's virtually unfathomable to us because when we started coaching back in the very early 2000s some of these kiddos were 14 years old amazing there you go well let me talk about your college experience and as you're 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 keenly aware of this and you actually coach runners who have had the kind of experience i'm about to talk about of you know, being at an elite college program we hear all the time and rightfully so just the grind that it can be and a lot of times people talk about you know the you know the uh, the imagery of like throwing like a dozen eggs against the wall and see which one doesn't crack and we see time and time again college runners who absolutely 100% don't run after college and it's such an interesting thing because it's a sport that's accessible to so many people it's one thing for a college baseball player not to play college after after college because like again men's adult men's leagues are just different you know same thing with like you know baseball or i mean with basketball or women's field hockey right you don't see like women's field hockey like pickup games happening whereas anyone can go for a run as long as they're physically able and yet so many top-level college runners simply just walk away after their college experience. What about your college experience led you to kind of either do the opposite or to to still be involved in running in in such a high level? That is a really interesting question, and it is a multifactorial analysis, if that's a fair way of putting it, and there are some um, pretty um, uh, sort of ingrained um, sort of behaviors and traditions and methodologies that go with the American university system. I would like to preface anything that I say here with the fact that, first of all, um, it's uh, 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 a big day for the women, right, in this world today. And Um, A shout out to all of the university athletic departments that have embraced Title IX and everything that is We should say it's International Women's Day. That's why why Jeff is making that comment. Yeah, Yeah. because I guess guess this isn't rolling out live. So people are like, what's he talking about? Today's International Women's Day. And let's look at where we are now compared to where we were in 1973 versus 2023. And it's absolutely remarkable. And... Uh, um, look at where we are. That said, it's really interesting because we get into the university system when we have two four-year end caps in our careers. We have the four-year high school system and we have the four-year uh, university system-ish. I mean, we can get into the nuances of red shirts and things like that. What for the purposes of conversation? It's four-year end cap. So we tend to um, uh, 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 have an, a Elevate the level of urgency. The minute we show up on university campuses and let's cram two workouts a week in, let's uh, train through races, let's show up to races with an immense amount of neuromuscular fatigue, let's run on dead legs, let's um, get away from home for the first time, right? And so we have um, autonomy and possibly sleep patterns aren't the best. Um, and we're running 50, 60, 70% more than possibly we did at the age of 16 by the time we're 18 or 19. And it's a grind, and it is, and it's a wonderful experience. And the American university system has provided so much for so many. Um, Look at all of the international athletes and all of the American uh, kids who have gotten university educations paid for. It's been a launch pad for amazing running careers, but it also is really exhausting. And so, you know, when I get people out of the university system, we said, you know, man, I'm just tired, both the neck up and the neck down, right? And we don't really need to differentiate the mental from the physical because we have physical manifestations of emotional stress, massive doses of cortisol, all the stuff that we're pretty familiar with. We get tired, we get tired 22 year olds, don't we? We really do, you know, and uh, distance runners tend to be high achievers, 
distance runners um, have, tend to have pretty high GPAs. We have lots of people who are pre-med, majoring in business. We have engineering students uh, uh, going on and getting masters, PhDs, right? And so we have high achievers who are neurologically fatigued, uh, um, both from a neuromuscular standpoint and cerebrally. And we have a lot of 22, 23-year-olds who are just really tired. And so it's fun to sort of sit down and say, wow, you ran... 1035 in high school, uh, young lady, right? Or wow, you ran 904 in high school in the 3200. What happened when you went to University X or College Y? And you hear a lot of similar stories. Um, you can change the names and change the dates and change the schools, but you know, similar stories get written. Um, Tempo Tuesday, repeat Thursdays, uh, race on Saturday, uh, uh, gray zone training on Sunday on a 15-mile run, show up Monday, tired, rinse, repeat, four years straight. You hear it a lot. You hear it a lot. You really do. And so how do we um, rediscover the joy of racing? How do we inject energy into the workouts? How do we inject emotional and physical energy into the races? How do we go and get that almost giddy, childlike excitement that we had when we were 14, when we ran our first sub five minute mile. How do we recapture that at the age of 23, 24, 25, 30, sometimes 35 years old? And the answer is slowly, methodically, be a soft place for people to fall, be a listener, and realize that we don't have an end cap anymore. We got 15, 20 years of PRs. So let's just let the fitness creep in almost at the rate of plate tectonics rather than trying to just ramrod things, which just ends up making us tired. And uh, you get this thing that we call burnout that I don't think we really know how to quantify. We just kind of say it and maybe we don't know what we're talking about all the time. Yeah, and then also just out of due respect to the, the college coaches who may be listening or just even if they're not, like pushing the kids like that for a short period of time works. I mean, it just works. If it didn't work, they wouldn't be doing it, right? I mean, that's this is literally their job. They wouldn't be doing it if it didn't work, if it didn't win championships, and if they didn't push someone, for, again, for a hard two months, and then they PR'd, if, if that sort of thing didn't work in the short term. So it's not like, hey, this doesn't make any logical sense. It does make logical sense if you're only looking at a very finite amount of time. However especially with the runners you're talking to, like you mentioned, there is no end cap. So if you think if you if you change the structure of reward for a coach or a program to say, no, I don't care if you win the Big 12 championship this year. I care if Jeff Cunningham qualifies for the Olympic trials at some point in his career. How can you how can you make that happen? Right. Again, I'm not saying I'm not saying programs should do that because all of a sudden every coach is automatically on a 20 year contract. But there is that that sort of like, hey, what are the end goals? What are you what are these coaches being asked to do? And here they are trying to do it. And especially early on in their career, they don't might not have the ability to be like, I can't think about someone's lifetime as a runner. Like I have a two year deal and I'm trying to get extended. And the only way this can happen is if I'm t if I'm you know top three in the conference. And that's. And, and, and here we go. So, again, I don't want to vilify people. There are great people who, who end up doing this. And if you look at it from their perspective, it can be understandable, even if after the fact we look at it and be like, oh, this might not be the best system and maybe be not the best for just like American distance running, generally speaking, if we want to maximize what we're putting out as a country in terms of like athletic uh, Olympic potential or world championship potential. Well, it's an interesting quandary because – um, coaches have bosses, and the bosses have bosses, and um, conferences um, award championships, and of course the NCAA, the NA, um, the NAIA, the NJCAA, they 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 award championships, and so we have to be cognizant of that reality when we're looking at the way distance runners develop. One of the things that we know is that an 18-year-old boy, typically from an aerobic standpoint, cannot shake a stick at a 25-year-old or a 30-year-old aerobically. We do not have very many 18-year-olds in this country who can possibly even dream of going out within you know, a few months of their, their 18th birthday and running a 209 marathon. 
210 marathon, 2730 for 10K, 1320 for 5K. It just it just doesn't happen because we know that adult males don't have the aerobic development and don't have the maturity um, until they are um, probably well into their 20s, if we're being honest. But it's a difficult thing because... Eighth place scores, ninth place doesn't at the SEC championships or the Big 12 championships. We live in a what-can-you-do-for-me-now world, and it's completely understandable that we've got to try to go and get this fire to burn hot and see if we can whip these these these, these, these young people um, into shape and being competitive. And it's just really tough uh, um, to get an 18-year-old uh, to be able to run 13 20 um, 13.31, I was talking to my coach, my, my old college coach just yesterday. He had a guy run 13.31, not make NCAAs in the 5,000 indoors. There were five kids on Washington that broke four minutes in the mile in one meet. Yeah. It's one interesting, meet. isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> my it's, God. Um, it's, it, we, we live in a different world, man. You know, it's so uh, it's tough because you want to adopt the long um, plan and you want to adopt the aerobically developmental plan that doesn't have um, the um, these young runners um, cerebrally and physically, neurologically fried. Right. And so that there is uh, some gas left in the proverbial tank when they're 24, 25. Um, All right. Let's talk. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the aerobic side. Yeah. Like, you know, you, you mentioned that aerobically, again, these younger runners, you said specifically male, and I'm going to you know assume that you, you also mean for female as well in terms of like the aerobic, yeah, the, the, the aerobic gap between some of these ages, even if the top end speed gap may be minimal, if non-existent. So talk to me about just the aerobic development side um, and what that means, why it takes longer, and why as um, these runners grow and mature, that that piece can play such an interesting role even in races that last no more than 16 minutes all right everybody you want to take a quick break and give a shout out to lagoon oh my gosh they are amazing this year I'm really trying to take better care of myself both before and after my runs and one of the areas that i'm really focusing on is sleep and not just about the time you the time you spend in bed obviously that's important but also making sure you have quality and not just quantity And that's a big thing, right? We talk about all the time with training, quantity and quality, same thing with sleep. And part of that is your pillow. I have the Fox pillow. That was the one that I got after taking the online quiz, which was really interesting to take. You you figure out like, what, what exactly do I need? What do I need my pillow for? How do I sleep? What are my preferences? And it makes a big difference. And this is a pillow I've had for over a month now. It's coincided with my biggest 30 days of training that I've ever had. And I feel really, really good. And I know a big reason for that is because of how I'm sleeping and how I'm sleeping is affected by my pillow and things are just going so well for me. Waking up from my morning runs has never felt better. I'm refreshed. I'm pain-free in large part thanks to Lagoon Pillow. So go to lagoonsleep.com. That's L-A-G-O-O-N sleep.com forward slash rambling. Take their awesome two-minute sleep quiz to find your match and then use code rambling for 15% off your first purchase today. We're figuring it out in the United States. When I was a young guy in the 1980s and then the early 1990s in middle school and in high school and then into college, we could not get a distance runner to the finals at a major international championship. We couldn't even get a distance runner to the semifinals. Uh, Bob Kennedy, when he took the lead at the 1996 Olympic Games in Atlanta in the 5,000, I'm getting goosebumps on my arm right now because of the roar that went up in that stadium in Atlanta because we got to see an American take the lead on a pack of Kenyans that were basically game planning to beat Kennedy. And that was the moment when I thought, maybe we can do this. Now, In the 1990s, that's when I graduated from high school, we had one runner, I believe, between 1990 and 1999 in the state of Texas break nine minutes for 3,200 meters. And I'll name him, and I'll laugh if somebody remembers him. It was Rod Caborzi from uh, 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 
uh, Jersey Village High School, I believe. He ran 8.57, and then he ended up going to Georgetown, I believe. Okay? Um, we have multiple boys break nine minutes in the same race now, and then, of course, you go out to like Mount Sac and Arcadia out in California, and you'll have 12, 13 boys break nine minutes for 3,200. Why? Why? Because we're investing on the aerobic side of the coin and we're not trying to do the American shortcut, which is let's see how little we can get away with. Now what we're doing is let's see how much we can do to be able to develop. And so that's why we're starting to see tons of people. Meb, you see uh, uh, um, Galen, right? We see uh, Lionel Manzano. We see uh, Jenny Simpson. We see Emma Coburn. I mean, it, the new reality is Americans medal at World Championships and at Olympic Games. Guys, you got to understand in the 1980s and 1990s, um, Lynn Jennings was our only hope, you know? Um, and uh, 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 Mary Slaney. Right? I mean, you could name on one hand for 20 years the number of runners who we had a remote hope of meddling at an Olympic Games. And we're investing in the volume. We're investing in the reality that we've got to put in some miles and we got to do um, hard tempo running. And you can't just have an overinvestment in, 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 in anaerobic work and then let hope be part of your plan. Because I'm here to tell you right now, if hope is a major part of your plan, you ain't got a plan. And we're well, not. let's talk about that. Let's let's talk about that other part too. Yeah. Not just the hope, the the speed side, and and I now yeah. it gets it gets passed around now as like basically like a joke, and mm -hmm. people talk about like Jim Ryan's training plan when he was mm -hmm. like 17, 18, 19. Yeah. and it was like you know it, for a while it was passed around as gospel. Like if you want to run like Jim Ryan, you got to train like this. Now people know better. They pass around like, hey, this is how much of a freak Jim Ryan was that like he could literally do this workout and not break down. It's not like people don't use the training plan like that you should emulate. They view it as like, hey, this just shows what kind of physical freak Jim Ryan was that he could actually do this and mm. not like fall apart within like four months. And it was like this interesting thing of like, hey, just hammering you know, doing the, uh, what's the guy from uh, John Parker's uh, book? Now I'm forgetting his name. The Quentin main Cassidy. Um, Quentin Cassidy, just hammering 400s one after another at full speed. Like, it's great. It's, it's like, it it really sings to like the, the idea of like, hey, the harder you push, the better your results will be. And like mm -hmm. making that, like that direct correlation between the two. And, and it's, it's dramatic. It's inspiring. On mm. some level, it's logical, and it certainly has that Rocky Four aura behind it. But ultimately, as you mentioned, like it's just not a recipe for success. It's really interesting because any time that we rely on a statistical outlier as being representative of the whole, we yes. run the danger of hyper-focusing on somebody who's the exception. Rather, we should be focusing on the rule. Okay, there's a famous distance runner who came out of the state of Texas who was well known for running four or five miles a day max. The longest run this runner ever did in high school was six miles. When that runner ended up investing in uh, uh, training and not simply being a genetic freak and a statistical outlier, that, um, that runner ended up uh, becoming an Olympic medalist. Okay, and so... Uh, while the high school times were impressive, you have to understand that when you're dealing with a talent that's good enough to be an Olympic medalist, you can feed him, you can feed a runner like that warm, steaming piles of horse manure in high school, and they're probably going to run 410 in the mile. If they're a boy, they're probably going to run 449, 450 in, in the mile if they're a young lady. But don't confuse cause and effect, Right. Because right. if you gave one of those runners just a basic training plan where they're doing some tempo running and doing some threshold running, hitting some critical velocity paced repeats where they're not ripping and tearing at their connective tissue and their fascia to where they can roll back the next day, for instance, and do a relatively voluminous easy run to get the aerobic benefits of that, well, then you probably are looking at that boy instead of running 410, maybe running 
401 in high school or 359. That young lady, instead of running 450, maybe she goes on and runs 439 in the 1600 or 440. Let's make sure that we're not confusing cause and effect, right? And so what we've done in the U.S. now is we have this broad breadth. Look at the women's marathon times. In 1996 and in 2000, the Olympic trials standard for the women was 250, if I'm recollecting correctly, okay, in the marathon. Well, now we're at 237, and we can talk about carbon-plated shoes. Fine. But let's talk about the investment that our women have made. We have so many women running between 225 and 240 in the marathon right now. When I remember when uh, uh, um, the Lisa Weidenbachs of this world, right, um, were winning uh, uh, major marathons. I don't remember if it was New York or Boston. And I remember or, or going top three, four of those marathons running 231, 232. Right, and now, uh, 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 you know, we've got multiple women in the United States who are running in the mid two twenties in the same marathon, low two twenties in the same marathon, because we've invested in our own success. There's no better investment you can make as a sports federation, as a group of people, or as just an individual. There's no better investment you can make in the investment that you make in yourself. Right? We are investing because we're doing the work. And I love it. All right, let's talk about investing in yourself, specifically you, because you mentioned in these bygone eras of we don't have a hope of competing against some of the mm -hmm. world's best. Mm -hmm. That was also the era when you were running and mm. starting to get into like this realm. So like you're talking yeah. about this era as, hey, this kind of this lost generation. It was like after like the heydays of like, you know, the, the greater Boston track club and, and who are doing amazing things. All of a sudden we have the two generations of like what happened to all of our best runners. And then we get into the two thousands, but that's also when you kind of matriculated through the system. So talk to me about your education as a coach and how you have been able to learn through kind of these, these, these coaching missteps to a point now where you're talking about, what went wrong, and hopefully what we can do better. Right. Um, it's, it, is, it is pure evolution. And um, it's not my intention to name drop, but there are so many people who have been um, um, impactful in my formative years. And then as I learned how to be better at my craft, right? And so when I was a young guy, uh, uh, one of the great coaches in Texas state history uh, was my was my coach when I was 13, 14 years old. And uh, a guy by the name of Chris Schrader uh, uh, from Melbourne, Australia, came to the U.S., ran, and he's coached just um, um, somewhere between 70 and 100 state champions in the state of Texas. Okay? And then when you look at some of the people who he's coached, uh, one of whom is the, you know, uh, uh, when they were younger, and uh, now one of whom is the uh, the head coach at Adams State University, and everybody knows what Adams State does, you kind of start looking at sort of the coaching trees and who's affected you, right? And so then I go on to Baylor University, and Steve Gully was my coach. And, of course, he ended up coaching at the university, uh, uh, going to Tulsa. He's still there now. And, um, you know, uh, Chris O'Hare broke the indoor collegiate record for him. You know, when he was uh, uh, several years ago, and then Mark Scott uh, uh, won the NCAAs in the 10. Um, and so I, I had the opportunity to be coached by Coach Gully, right? And so then you get out and you start saying, man, um, as an attorney, there's one thing I learned. Is you don't know everything, but you get really, really good at looking stuff up and asking questions. Stay in your lane. Know what you don't know. It's more important to know that you don't know than to simply take what you know and stop learning. And so who do I consult? Man, you know, if I need some help, I mean, remember John Hayes was coaching here at the University of Texas for a long time. If I need, if I have a question, and Coach Hayes is a high-end aerobic coach, talk to Coach Hayes who recruited some of my runners when I was coaching at St. Michael's Catholic, right? Um, if I have a question and I want to bounce something off, um, 
you know, uh, am I going to ask Pat Tyson? You're darn right I'm going to ask Pat Tyson, who's at Gonzaga right now, right? And um, I'll never forget, Coach Tyson told me, I was like, what do I do with this boy? He's so good. He, he, he qualified for NXN Nationals in high school. How do I take him to the next level? How do I do this? He goes, Jeff, 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 Jeff. I said, yeah, yeah, Pat, what's going on? He said, um, remember, he's 18. Uh, at the end of the day, it's about the running. I was trying to, you know, do I do frogs jumps and box jumps and, you know, and, uh, you know, is there some kind of pixie dust and some sort of, you know, a tree he can climb four times a day to get faster? And Pat's like, hey, man, remember, it's about the running at the end of the day. You're 18-year-olds, limited bandwidth. You know, so you get these sage pieces of advice that you go with. And, of course, we now, we know that weightlifting and diet and things are important. But the point is, let's not overcomplicate something that's just so beautiful. It's left, right, left, right, left, right, and whoever gets to the finish line first wins. How do we get there, though? And so, you know, you consult people who know more than you. You get your system that works. Make sure that it's physiologically sound. And don't simply exist in an echo chamber where people tell you what you're doing is good. Make sure that you're peer-reviewing your work by sending your athletes out onto the race course and um, making sure that you're always meeting the needs of the athletes and because at the end of the day it's just only about them at the end of the day it has to be now you become a very recognizable guy over the last year and a half um not only because some of the athletes you work with who are doing amazing things one of them has been recently on this podcast mitch amons who's who's a tremendous guy who's someone you've been working with for a long time but someone you've been working with who's more well known than mitch is a guy nick bear who people may know from bear performance nutrition who's also a published author who has a very very popular youtube channel on which you have been many times. And those those episodes have got hundreds and hundreds of thousands of views. And all, you, you live in the Austin area, and you get a lot of people in that area who love running. It's very, um, I guess, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word, but very athletically driven town, right? And there's a lot of people there who are, who are very fit, who want to do really cool things. And I'm sure that you get contacted all the time by people who really want to see, you know, what they can do as an athlete and as a runner. So one thing I want to talk to you about, and in that vein, is what is talent when it comes to a running perspective? And also maybe what isn't talent? And I say this because... At first glance, it seems like an obvious question, right? Like, hey, the kid who can break five minutes in a mile when they're in eighth grade, right? Or or the female who can break six minutes in the mile when they're in eighth grade, right? They are a talented athlete. Okay, whatever. But I think the more you drill down, the more I the more time I spend on this question, the more confused I get. Like, is it a ta- like part of me is like, all right, is part part of this talent like the people who like just have endless energy? What is that? What? How does that fit into the talent matrix, right? We all know these people, and I think you're actually one of them. Like my mother-in-law, I say this all the time, is one of these people who, like, she can just go for like 18 straight hours. She can just go, and I am not that person. I am the exact opposite, right? I go and I crash from an energy perspective, and it's not diet-related. This is purely genetic, and I just like this is just an example of like where does that fit in into into the 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 talent matrix? So uh, I guess. Again, I'll just restate the question. From a running perspective, how do you view talent? And, I guess conversely, maybe what is not talent? I love this question. I love this question so much because I talk to people about it um, quite often, but never um, in any formal or semi-formal context like we're in right now. It's usually one-off conversations. And here's how I view talent. Um, you know, when somebody says, well, it's just mental, right? That does an incredible disservice to what I referenced before, which is attempting to drive a wedge or assuming that there's some level of disconnectedness between the mental and the physical, right? Somebody breaks into your bedroom at night, three o'clock in the morning, wielding a machete. What's your heart rate going to do, Matt? It's going to get to the max and then go about 100 beats higher. <laughs> right. So um, did, you, did, you, did, you, did you just run an all-out mile? Did you just do um, 250 jumping jacks as fast as you could? No, you were laying in bed. It was emotional distress that caused 
a physiologic response. And here's where I'm going with this seemingly circuitous answer is um, you have physical talent, which we can go and put somebody on a treadmill and we can do the finger prick and we can um, put a mask on them and, and do all the stuff that we do in the lab to measure the tangible physical stuff. But, you know, when you get to about 550 meters to go in the 1600 meter run in high school, at the end of the day, um, the ability to be a masochist, the ability to self-inflict immense amount of discomfort, the ability to perceive that your pain level is at a seven, when the other guy, if we had a way of measuring this, would interpret the same level of pain as a 10, and the ability to simply hurt. You can't measure it. You can't reach out and touch it and hold it and feel it and caress it. You just kind of know it when you see it and you see a guy. That guy is a drooling mess and he just fell on the water cooler on the infield right before the 4 by 400 meter relay. They had to peel that son of a gun off of the track because he skidded face down in his own drool. After running the 1600, the guy he just beat by 10 meters uh, walked off the track and was chatting and laughing with his friends 30 seconds after the race. Well, who ran harder? Well, the guy that's face down. And guess who won the race? The guy that's face down. Physically, was he as talented as the other guy? I don't know. Send him into the lab? Maybe not. Right? So there is a massive physical component to it. Right? I mean, there's nobody that's going to deny that people who are finishing in the top 10, 15, 20 in these gold label marathons are just just vastly and almost infinitely more physically talented than the bulk of the other runners on the planet. But then there's the intangible, how, um, how tough are they? Toughness. Listen, toughness is a part of talent, right? I would rather take a tough runner than a runner who is not tough. And that's part of talent. And it's a very uncomfortable thing because we don't know how to measure it. And, you know, is this the kind of toughness where, you know, you beat your head on a locker until it's deaded in, dented in and you've got blood squirting out of your temples? Well, that's not the kind of toughness we're talking about. Um, the ability to self-inflict discomfort is a much different kind of toughness than the amount of than the toughness that you have because you can stand still and let somebody punch you in the side of the head. Those are two different kinds of toughness. And so it's sneaky. It's sneaky. Distance runners are sneaky tough because don't confuse. Like going back to the book, Once a Runner, right? Uh, that scene, you know, where people are making fun of him as he's running down the street. And then they're shocked that a guy who's half naked in a pair of small shorts is not actually a wimp and scared, but a super tough guy and like ran up the back of his car and over the front and down the hood. You remember that, that, that yeah, scene in the book, right? Distance runners are tough people. And the tougher you are, you stack it on top of immense physical talent, that's the whole ball of wax that I quantify is this thing that we call talent. Okay. That's it. Now, we can't change our genetics. No. We can't alter it, right? If we, if we focus on like aerobic development, we can maybe take some of our, you know, some of our fast twitch muscles can move over to more slow twitch muscles, right? The type, I think it's 2A muscles, fibers can, can switch over. You were going where I was about to go. That's yeah. right. So, yeah. So, so you, you you can do some of that, right? So like, again, it doesn't mm -hmm. change your genetics, but you can change some of the um, genetic-like components that are associated with athletic performance. From sure. a training, from a toughness perspective, mm -hmm. this is something that I, I just, it's I feel like it's such a hard thing to train and get better at just when you're trying to advise somebody, right? Because first of all, you don't know exactly what they're thinking. You know what they're telling you, which might not even be quite the truth. And then even then, if they're trying to tell you the truth, might not actually be how they're feeling. They're just having a hard time verbalizing that feeling. And then also the idea of like, hey, like we said before, like you can't just like go out and like hammer every day. You're just going to, you're, you're, you know, you're you're literally and figuratively going to mm. run into a wall, even if that does help your toughness. Like you're well, you're going to have a stress fracture. So who cares, right? The toughest guy in crutches is still the slowest guy in the race. So, how do we ultimately, you know, work on toughness, work on being comfortable, being uncomfortable, and, and all of those those trite sayings uh, to allow ourselves to maximize whatever physical gifts that we may have? Love the question. 
you're asking all the great questions that I, uh, <laughs> I that I've always wanted to expound upon in a larger format. Thank you. There is no workout you can give a runner that will staple toughness to them like a sheet of paper on a bulletin board. Can't do it. Okay? But you can generate toughness uh, from a place where it actually exists but is masked through lack of confidence. Right? A confident runner is often a tough runner. A runner that lacks confidence is not a tough runner and it is not actually the fact that they don't have the ability to self-inflict discomfort it's that they don't trust their fitness or they don't trust themselves or they don't trust their coach and so you can give a runner workouts that breed confidence and from confidence comes toughness and from toughness comes great racing and so what you do is is you do actually spend a ton of time trying to help with those malleable fibers, which is those type 2A fibers, and alter them from their more static state, their untrained state, which is more of a white fiber, more of an anaerobic performing fiber, and it's malleable in that it can be changed into something that can perform more aerobically, and every distance running coach in the country, whether or not they phrase it this way or slightly differently, when it comes down to the science of it, we are all spending time trying to figure out how to take those malleable fibers and make them perform more aerobically. And that's the difference between a runner beating another runner by 90 seconds and a half marathon. It's the difference between a woman running 71.30 and 70 flat is how do we train these malleable fibers? And I tell you what, what you do is you take an untrained runner and they say, I'm not good at tempo running. And when I hear that, I ask them, well, what has been your experiences with tempo running? And they usually fall into two piles. Either I've never really done enough of it to really have a well-formed opinion on whether or not I'm good at it, or they were three mile or four mile all-out races masked as workouts in high school and college. That's usually the two piles that tempo runs come into. And then interval work the same way. Were you running at 100 or 110 or sometimes just astonishingly 115% of MVO2 pace? And that's why you loathe interval work. And the reason why you were always so neurologically fatigued is because you were shutting down your aerobic pathways because you were going lactic early, running anaerobically so early, you had no chance to get any aerobic development from this seven or eight times 1K workout when you were running them so fast that after about three reps, you were just kind of in survival mode. So what you do is, is you train a runner, you get them confident in the aerobic space because we ain't running the 100, folks. We're not running the 200-meter dash. Love them. Uh, my wife was an All-American in the 400. Uh, uh, let her handle that, right? But the reality is we're running long races, 5K, 10K, uh, a half, full, and they are all anywhere from 80 to 99% of the composition of the system that we call upon is the aerobic system. We better be training that so you can take a runner, make them confident in that space. And then suddenly the toughness that they always had, they always had, then rises to the surface because suddenly they walk up to a starting line and their chest is puffed out and they're looking around and they're kind of going, y'all are about to mess with the bull and you're going to get the horns today. How do you work with athletes who may know intellectually and be on, and be on, and on the page with you with mm. everything you just said, mm. but they're also extremely driven people mm. who want the results now? So there's this fundamental disconnect. Be like, yes, I know everything you're saying, and I know the literature. I know how long it takes, but at the same time, I got a race in four months, and I wanted and I wanted to do X, Y, Z, and it, it's just there, there's a natural discrepancy there because the aerobic system doesn't necessarily work on the timeline sometimes that we wish it would. Yeah, and um, and and it's one of these things where we are the same organism fundamentally that we were um, 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, 
We are the same organism. Homo sapiens um, have existed essentially with the same aerobic system for thousands of years. Our existence is but a blip on the continuum of the evolution of the world of mammals. And so what we have to understand is we are not going to change the oxygen delivery system that Mother Nature gifted us through uh, over the, 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 the sort of the march of time, so to speak right so we have the same and even making it a shorter time period we have the same aerobic system that roger banister uh, uh um has right but when we look at guys um now there's been the proposal to even stop tracking who breaks four minutes in a mile because it's just done so often now well what has changed well you know we learn how to train the aerobic system so it's tough though when we now live in a microwave dinner world when we are engaged in a turkey baking sport. Insta gram, what is the prefix, Matt? It's insta, right? right? We have rapid cleaners where we can take our shirts to get pressed and dry cleaned at the cleaners. And if you pay an extra dollar to have it done before the close of business that day. Um, and so we have all these things that are insta and rapid, and it's been really revolutionary, and it's really wonderful in so many different ways because it's made the world so small. Um, how did I find out who you are? What's the first place you and I ever corresponded? Well, it was Instagram, so don't, don't get me wrong. But the problem is we now have short-circuited uh, the things that make us so quintessentially human. Um, the um, concepts of delayed gratification, for instance. We want it now, and we want to inject our artificially induced petulance and short-circuit the things that make us so unique relative to uh, other, other, other um, um, animals in the animal world, in the animal kingdom, right? And so we got to stick to the basics of how we do this thing. And we've got to unlearn uh, behaviors where it's instant, instant, instant. I want it now, 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 now. And then I preach the consequences of trying to burn the fire too hot. Injury, um, illness, um, emotional uh, 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 fragility and meltdowns, the things that go with trying to rush processes, the frustration that goes with us. And so I try to use examples of people who slow played the process and have come out the other side happy um, and um, we just try to, I really try to impress upon them the need to sort of unlearn the learned behaviors that are our, um, uh, our, our, our needs, so to speak, um, for instant gratification. And so let's compartmentalize the things that we can get done really, really quickly. And then let's also compartmentalize the things that we can't um, get done quickly and invest in process but it it, it 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 takes time in sort of re-urging the same notions and reiterating the same um, scientific truisms so to speak so that we can really really um, take what we intellectualize and that we psychologically understand and then put it into practice day to day week to week month to month and in year to year I tell some people look you know, um, you may not make the 2024 trials, but there's 2028. You're only going to be 34 by 2028. Nobody's going to be ready to put you out to pasture, right? And if anybody thinks anybody in the late 30s can't run fast, ask uh, Kira D'Amato um, about that, and she's going to let you know what it's like um, to break an American record um, at an age when 30 years ago, people would have said, oh, wow, you know, you stay home, have babies, and, and your, your, your sports are done. Well, we now know that's not true. We got time, man. Lots of time. So you work with a lot of really high-level athletes, both mm -hmm. professional and elite amateur runners. Now, yeah. a lot of people who are listening to this are not, while they're amateur runners, they may not be elite amateur runners, right? They're not people who are knocking down the door on the Olympic trials, even though they have a full-time job, right? They're people who are like, hey, I want to break 430 in the marathon. Right. I want sure. to break four hours in the marathon. And that's a, a huge goal for them. So when we're talking about that group of people, even people like, hey, I want to bring 30 minutes in a 5K. Right. They're actually most of the people I coach are not um, elite um, or competitively elite runners. Um, I would See, say, I just assumed. Thank you for correcting me on yeah, that. No, I just assumed okay. you, were, you were in that that rarefied air with the most, with most of your athletes. No, no, because. Um, 
I love running. I like coaching people who run. I like coaching people who um, have only four days a week to run. I like coaching people for whom finishing a marathon will reduce them to a sobbing mess um, 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 out of pure joy. And people have to understand that I view their goals as being just as significant as anybody else's. And I've had mm -hmm. people who I've coached who once were 400 pounds. And then that guy went and ran a 350-something marathon in Chicago last year. And that accomplishment for a person like that is the same as an accomplishment of a guy going from running 227 to 217.59 and qualifying for the U.S. Olympic trials. So no, I would say, and uh, I, I'm just guesstimating it, that 75% of the people I coach um, run over 315 all the way up to five, five and a half hours in the marathon. That's great to know. I appreciate you sending me straight on that. That no, makes the okay. question about it's, to ask like even better. Sent you straight. It's just interesting because people get well known for the high profile, the glitz and the glamour yeah. and the oh my yeah. god, you know. And I'm like, no, man, your 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 goal to run 3:29 in a marathon not only matters to you so much, it matters to me too. It matters to me too. I take it personally when people walk away like, man, I'm just down on myself. I failed. That 3:29 goal that matters, man. It matters big time. So with those folks, right, the kind of the, yeah. the more typical amateur runners, yes. what are some of the low-hanging fruit that you often see that can can help them improve a little bit quicker, right, and really kind of can get them jump-started towards these goals that they may have identified prior to starting to work with you? Understand that progress is not linear. Do not try to create linear process in a endeavor where it is a physiologic impossibility and I'm not using impossibility as hyperbole I mean that literally it is impossible there is no person there is no way to have linear progress and so then what does that mean that means stop pressing on your easy runs stop it run easy Invest in easy. We have criminalized easy in this country. We have glorified going hard every day. We say things that are endemic in the exercise space, in the fitness space, that have no place in the development of distance runners, whether or not you are a four-day-a-week runner who wants to run a five-hour marathon, or if you are an emerging regionally elite lady who wants to break three hours in a marathon. Okay? Embrace the grind. No. I'm here to tell all of you, do not embrace grinding. When our brake pads are grinding on our car, we don't yell, wee and go down the biggest hill we can find and just smash on the brakes. You know why? Because then you're going to have a $3,500 repair on the rotors on your car. We go and we get the brake pads replaced because we don't embrace grinding right so if your brake pads are grinding that means don't go out and keep pressing on your easy runs let's slow it down let's slow it down i had a guy in north carolina call me up today literally euphoric because he ran 11 times a thousand meters at 5 30 pace today he was so exhausted last week he literally could not run eight minute pace on his easy days and i said you are going to jog you are not going to do anything other than monitor your heart rate. And if that heart rate goes a tick over 135, you must slow down. Jogged literally for five days straight, sat in some Epsom salt baths, and sat on the couch with his old lady and watched some TV. And suddenly he came alive because we didn't embrace the grind. We didn't hammer. So I'm telling everybody, let's slow it down. Don't try to create linear improvement because you can't do it. And you can't go hard every day. So let's not embrace the grind, right? Um, let's not um, try to get 1% better every day, okay? Now listen, I'm a hick from Tyler, Texas. I'm not real bright, okay, Matt? 
but I understand a little tiny bit about compounded interest. And if you got 1% better at something every day, I think in 60 or 70 days, you're 100% better. You find me one runner. You find me Eliud Kipchoge. You find me Emily Sisson. Or you find uh, uh, um, Jenny Jolly Jogger from around the block. You find me one person who's gotten 100% better at running in 65 days, I'll, I'll, I'll send you my next mortgage payment. Doesn't happen. So well, yeah, get- Kip- Kipchoge was a Kipchoge was an international star at 18. So no, I think I don't think he did. Right, 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 right. I mean, listen, I told somebody the other day they were shocked. I says, "Man, I'm going to be happy with three uh, percent, two percent improvement in a year." What do you mean? I'm like, well, take your 330 marathon PR and multiply that by three percent, and you let me know what that number is, and that is a fat ass PR, man. Right. So let's yeah. not try to get one percent yeah. better every day. So that's an eleven minute. That's eleven minute drop. There you go, fat ass PR, right? No, that's not right? true. That's if that's if that's if there's a hundred minutes in an hour. That's horrible on the spot math. I don't oh my know. God. It's horrible. a lot of time. Horrible math. It's six minutes. Six six or seven minutes. Anyway, keep going. Uh, Matt, I'd love to tell people that the reason I went to law school was because I was enamored with the uh, uh, liberty of justice for all, and one of the reasons I went to law school is because I can't do math. Um, don't let that secret get out, but I think I just let it out. But, um, no, in reality, let's not try to get 1% better every day. Let's slow down the easy runs. Um, we also tend to not run enough volume, but the byproduct of running too hard every day is we limit the amount of volume we can run because we're just so bloody tired all the time. Um, listen, you know, we're running 13 mile races and marathons. It's a volume business. And within reason, um, the more we run, the faster we're going to run. Um, uh, and the less we run, the slower we're going to run at marathons. I say that within reason, because when we start talking about 90, 100, 120 miles a week, well, then we can have some conversations, right, about whether you need to be doing that. But I'm here to tell you, I'd rather take a guy on 50 miles a week than 25 miles a week into the Boston Marathon here on April 17th, right? And so what I'm saying is, is let's slow it down. That way we enable ourselves to feel good better day to day. When we feel better day to day, we're going to want to run more day to day. And then the more we run, when we're doing big races, the faster we're going to be able to race. And then the second thing is, let's look at the composition of the running. Just run more. What's the composition of the running? Why are you running that pace? What does that pace mean to you physiologically? What system are you training? And whether or not you're a 430 marathoner or a 230 marathoner, you are um, born with two lungs. You breathe oxygenated air in. It goes out through the base of your lungs, through your alveoli, into the pulmonary artery. You have oxygen that attaches itself to a red blood cell. You better have iron or you won't be able to do that. Let's not be anemic, everybody. Takes it to working muscles. And then the more you train at a moderately intense rate, then you're going to get these things called mitochondrial density and distal capillarization, all that stuff that we get, right? And so why are you training at that pace and is it aerobically developmental? And if you train at paces that scientifically fit within a certain zone that are going to massage that beautiful aerobic system that we evolved with, um, you're going to get faster if you do more of that and you moderate your paces such that you aren't face down in the dirt, right? Um, listen, I love football, but I was 5'7", 125 pounds when I graduated from high school in 1993. I wasn't going to play football. Um, we love this um, hockey or coaching shorts up and beat your head on a locker kind of toughness, this rah, rah, rah stuff. Man, I love it. I'm seasoned. Season ticket holders have been for years for my fight in Baylor Bears, right? But the reality is, is face down in the dirt after every run is going to end up netting you negative results, not positive results. And I can say that with no small amount of conviction. I love that. That's great. Of everything you just said, I, uh, one saying that I've heard that I love for this is like, if, if, if your workout was a cup of coffee, you need to leave room for cream, right? So like, don't, don't overflow the cup, right? Or, or another one is like, Hey, if you're doing intervals and things like that, like you should be able to run one more at pace, right? Yes. Like the, you know, things like that. Kind of like the idea being like, you aren't going to the well again, if it's race day, 
that's what racing is all about. But we're not practicing going to the well in these workouts. We're, we're practicing building up practicing. We are building up these systems that will get us to where we want to be on race day and ho- hopefully uh, lead to some of these big stimuli that can um, give us some of that nonlinear progression when, 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 he, uh, when we can have that find it fascinating that we internalize the need to be restrained in every facet of life. We internalize the need to um, adhere to the principles of pacing in nearly every facet of our lives. But then um, I think we tend to not put it into practice when it comes to our run training. Um, For instance, we recognize the need for speed limits when we're on the interstate. You don't get to just go pedal to the metal everywhere because you're going to kill yourself or others. So we recognize the need to be restrained in the way we drive, right? We recognize the need to be restrained in board meetings and in Zoom meetings um, and or we're going to end up in front of HR and jobless. If we don't proceed with restraint, think about the way we approach life and hold on to the reins really tightly and not spiral out of control. But then we allow our emotions and we allow our methodology to spiral out of control, to engage in pedal-to-the-metal behavior, to engage in unrestrained behavior when it comes to tempo running, which turn into races, um, repeat workouts, which turn into races. And we somehow have either ignored the ill effects of it or even worse yet glorified that methodology when we would never employ it in any other facet of our life, right? Parenting. You're a parent. Think about how much restraint you have to have. You can't just fly off the handle. You can't just do it. I need more. Right. So let's exercise a bit of impulse control. Let's exercise a little bit of impulse control in the micro during the workout and in a macro when it comes to planning our race schedules, our training schedules, our training plans, and our um, um, overall approach to the incremental improvements that are going to meet with so much um, satisfaction and joy if we do it right. I love it. Jeff Cunningham, thank you so much for coming on the show, my man. Um, My pleasure. I cannot thank you enough for... Uh, the work that you do on this podcast, and it is a service to the entire running community in this country and worldwide, and I am honored uh, to have been your guest here today, Matt. I really appreciate you. Wow, what a thing to say. Thanks, Jeff. All right.